Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show number 11. I think authenticity is a huge thing. Like, if you've got a story to tell and you adhere to that story, and the consumer can feel it and they can feel like they're a part of the story along with you, I think that's something that we have that is really hard to replicate. Welcome to a real-world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. Hey there, everybody. Jay Scott here, the co-host of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. I'm here today with the ever awesome Carol Scott. How are you doing today, Carol Scott? I'm doing so well, honey. Can I tell you why? Please tell me why. I don't think you even know this yet, but we have finally landed on a moving company. Woo woo. Oh my gosh. I have been losing my mind. I've been talking to so many moving companies and we've moved so many times and we always go with the big guys over and over. But for, I don't even know what the reason is this time. I'm just tired of dealing with all the big guys. So I reached out to those guys who helped us with some staging stuff a couple months back and they're little and they don't do a lot of state to state stuff, but I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to give my shot. So they came in, they interviewed our, they did like an inventory of our stuff. And at the end of the day, they're going to cost a little bit more, but I'll tell you what, you know them, they're so good. They just pour their heart and soul into every single thing they do. And so I know they're going to take such great care of us and it's completely worth it. It's going to cost a little bit more, but at the end of the day, we're going to be so happy we went with them. So that's my tip of the day, everyone. Sometimes it really just isn't about price. You've got to look at the whole overall picture and how is the experience going to be? So these guys are good and I am very pleased that we can move forward. Woo! And you know, that is a great lead up to today's show. We have an awesome guest for you. His name is Dave Thibodeau. He is the co-founder of Ska Brewing out of Durango, Colorado. Dave is awesome. So imagine 20-something-year-old guy. You spent your high school years brewing beer with your dad and your friends. You're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. That was Dave 25 years ago. What did he do with his life? He ended up starting one of the first microbrews in the country. This is before craft brewing was anything. Back in the 90s, he started this craft brewery. He's going to tell us about how he started the brewery. He's going to tell us about his early marketing and sales strategies, how he named the brewery. He's going to tell us about literally how he went out and got that first sale and then turned that first sale into a business that today is in 10 states. It's international. He's spun off different businesses to to complement his brewery. This is a really awesome story. It's a really awesome interview. I'm really excited for this interview today. Yeah, he's a lot of fun. He has all kinds of crazy stuff. Like he's going to tell us that, ready for this, one of their main marketing things was developing a comic book about their company. Yes, for real. And so another one of my very favorite things you're going to hear about is the term coopetition. Okay, coopetition. He's going to tell us what that means and how it really helped his business succeed. So talking about helping each other succeed, we would so love your help. Okay, can you please go to your podcast app, find the big Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. You're Leave listening to us. it right now. You are listening to it. That's right. 
leave a review and give us a rating. Okay. We really want to hear what you have to say. We love reading your feedback and finding out what you want to be hearing about. And it helps us keep the show fresh and relevant and figure out what we can do even better. Okay. And one more thing while you're at it, dig into your network and find just one person, just one person who loves business and send them a link to our podcast so they can subscribe to. So now let's hear a word from today's show sponsor. I own a bunch of rental property. And if you do as well, then this probably sounds familiar. You've got a vacancy, so you list your place on a bunch of websites, Craigslist, PadMapper, Zillow, Facebook. Then you get a bunch of applications for your property via email. Then you use yet another website to screen the applicants, and that's before you even have a tenant in the property. Well, here's a great way to keep everything in one place. Cozy provides property management tools to help you save time. So there's no need for keeping 20 tabs open in your browser. You can list, screen, collect rent, and track expenses and maintenance requests online. And the best part is, it's completely free. Plus, I'm an engineer, so I really appreciate this. Cozy's user interface is simple, intuitive, and pleasing to the eye. So whether you're frustrated with your current property manager or you've been doing everything manually, check out Cozy at Cozy.co and get your time back so you can do more of what matters. Again, that's Cozy.co. Give them a try today. Okay, now go support our sponsor. And now, without any further ado, let's jump into our interview with Dave Thibodeau. Welcome to the show, Dave Thibodeau. Nice to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Dave, I have so many questions I want to ask you. There is no lack of stuff I want to find out about how you got started, how you grew over the years, and how you just became such a successful, awesome business and have stayed so amazing over a whole 25-year span. But I'm going to let Jay take it from the top. Go, Jay. What you got? So, Dave, okay. Unlike a lot of our guests, I think you... You started what ended up being your ultimate business. I think you started uh, Ska Brewing back in the 90s, the mid-90s, and you were right out of college. You were really young, and it's it's a really cool business. So instead of starting with like the back, back, back story, I'd love to start just right from the time that you decided, I'm out of college, I'm looking for something to do, I'm going to start a beer brewing business. How did that come about? Tell us the story of how Ska Brewing got started. <laughs> It's a pretty interesting story. We were we were definitely kind of punk ass kids. I still don't feel like I've grown up much, but and in, throughout high school, college, beer was kind of an important thing to us for all the wrong reasons. But we did discover a homebrewing book on my dad's bookshelves, and we realized he had been homebrewing since 1969. And we started looking through it, trying to figure out where he added the alcohol, and then we realized he was actually creating the alcohol, and it was like a light bulb going off. And uh, so we started brewing with with my dad when we were in high school, and that continued through college. And uh, in fact, most of my I was a communications multi major, and most of my projects, whether it was a video or a speech or a technical writing paper, were on brewing beer, bringing beer to school and handing it out to the class, which they all freaked out about. So by the time we graduated college, we were actually getting pretty good at brewing beer, and. Uh, my partner, I have two partners, Bill Graham and Matt Vincent. Didn't know Matt at the time, but Bill was going to school at CU in Denver, and I was going to school at Metropolitan State College. And by the time we both graduated in 93, we were 
we knew that what we were going to school for was not what we wanted to do with our lives. So we started talking about actually building a brewery. And so we moved to Durango and it was took a couple of years of planning and, you know, obviously dating everything, but there just, you didn't have the, uh, we didn't have the internet. <laughs> so we couldn't just look up how to start a brewery. And so it took a couple of years to like get through the licensing process and, and actually get to the point. And of course, finding funding, that was not easy. Everybody just laughed at us. I, I think I remember reading somewhere that you guys were like literally living out of your cars, sleeping in airports. What, what was up with that? Yeah, there was. So we started, you know, we went to our original plan was we, we kind of drew it out. We drew out this comic book that kind of told our, our embellished comic book story of our existence on the back of a napkin. And that was basically what we went to the bank and the SBA with as a business plan. And they just laughed at us. And, and so it was, you know, we decided we've got to make this happen out of spite, if nothing else. And uh, so Bill's dad actually lent us $47,000 to start the business. And we found some brewing equipment at an old brewery in Spokane, Washington. So, so wait a second, did he lend you the 47,000 because he really believed in, in, in you guys? Or was it one of those, okay, leave me alone, take the money and, <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully you don't ask me for anything more for a couple I, of years. I know, right? Cause I'm sitting here thinking about like my kids are eight and nine and I'm like, gotta be honest, Dave, I'm not so sure I'd be throwing 47 grand at my little guy to like go make beer. So how oh. did he say, okay, this is cool. <laughs> I can work with this. Yeah. And if you, if we were your kids, you would have been absolutely, you'd have drawn the line and said, no. <laughs> Um, that's the kind of kids we were, but it was, uh, you know, it was Bill's dad really believed in it. He watched us from day one when we first started homebrewing and he watched it get better and better. And he was, he was pretty into it. And he actually really believed in the idea and that wasn't very much money. There was a lot to do. You know, the first brewing equipment we found was about $30,000 of that 47. And that's, you know, we don't even have a space yet. So <laughs> we were running out of money pretty quick but that was why we did interesting things like, you know, when we went up to Spokane to buy that equipment from this other brewery, we slept in the uh, the little foyer of the airport in Spokane. What? So I woke up. I literally, I honestly woke up in the morning with, with because they locked the inside doors of the foyer, but not the doors to the outside. So it was kind of like a little glass room that we actually threw our sleeping bags down in and slept there instead of a hotel. Well well, that's entirely resourceful. I give you lots of credit for resourcefulness. And so you're in Spokane, you're being all resourceful. You've got, you know, a little, got a little bit of seed money, $47,000, 30,000 of which is to buy some brewing equipment. So how did you even figure out what you needed to, to buy this $30,000 equipment? And it didn't occur to me until before you said it, you're right. Cause we graduated the same year. There was no internet back then. So how did you even go down the path of exploring what you needed to do to start growing this into some type of real production? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's unreal to think about because it's hard to even know that, to remember that there was a day like that, right? So, right. <laughs> we um we were fortunate enough to have a really good friend, one of our best friends. You know, where I went to school in, in high school in Wheat Ridge, right outside of Denver, a suburb of Denver. It, it was kind of at the time becoming. It was early on the craft brewing scene, so a lot of the people that went to Wheat Ridge actually ended up in craft brewing. And we were fortunate enough that our best friend was the head brewer by this time at the Wincoop Brewing Company in Denver, and. We hired him, basically, we gave him 5% of the business out of the gates to be our consultant and help us figure out just what you're asking. You know, is it the right? What equipment do we need? And uh, how do we really go about this? We, 
putting the business side together was really kind of difficult and that just kind of flowed. But, but as far as like, what do we need? How do we, what's our recipe? How do we actually brew on big equipment? That was, we were fortunate enough to have resources in other people. Right. Do you remember back then, like, what was your plan? Were you brewing beer to like sell to local uh, bars? Did you want to get it into stores? Did you want to start your own retail outlet and, and sell your own stuff in your own restaurant? I mean, what was the ultimate goal? If you had to imagine where you were going to be in five or 10 years as a successful person starting brewing this beer, what was, what did success look like back then? <laughs> That's a great question because I don't think that we were really thinking that far in the future. I mean, in all honesty, I don't know that I, ever realized it was going to succeed until just a couple of years ago. I looked back and was like, wow, that actually worked. <laughs> but uh, it was um, out of the gates. You know, what we realized was we wanted to live in Durango. Uh, and that was, so we started working on the brewery, but we both worked other full-time jobs during the day. So we would work all day um, at our other jobs. And then about five, five thirty we would get off and start working on the brewery. And so the whole first year we would work overnight at the brewery and go home and sleep for about two hours before we started our regular jobs again. So we didn't have a lot of time to actually think about the vision and put a long-term plan in place. All we wanted to do at first was make beer and sell it to a couple of draft accounts, or we call them on-premise accounts in Durango. So just have a couple bars and restaurants that where people could go and get our, get our beer. And uh, that was really the original plan. And there wasn't a lot of, you know, there weren't nearly as many breweries. So there was, it was hard to follow somebody else's model at the time because there just, there was only a few laws were just, we were just being, learning how to navigate the, the rules, really the laws. It's pretty complicated. Alcohol's from state to state and then dealing with the feds. It's, it's a complicated situation. So just weaving through all of that was, took up all of our time and then, naturally just the way we evolved suddenly we were packaging beer canning be well bottling beer uh -huh. and canning beer and next thing you know it's in multiple states and then even internationally and it just it just kind of happened organically for us for the first few years for sure okay so okay so you had this vision or well, you, you kind of had a little bit of a vision but then it grew organically and you're in all these states and internationally but at some point you had to sell that make that first sale to someone so what was that first sale and how'd you go about getting it? That's a really cool, uh, that's a really cool story. I'm glad you asked that. There was another, there's another brew pub here in Durango called Carver's. And they were, I think, behind the wind coop, probably the second brew pub pouring beer in Colorado. And because they were brewers, we went in there with our friend that was the brewer at the wind coop. He knew Bill Carver, the owner of Carver's Brewery. And we went in there to tell him our plan. And I was really timid. I was super afraid to go talk to this guy because he's been doing it for a few years now. And I thought he'd look at us as, as competition. And uh, I was just nervous to talk to him because he knew what he was doing and I didn't. And so the three of us went in there, Kyle, our consultant, for lack of a better term, and, and Bill and I. And we met with him and we told him what our plan was. And the first words out of his mouth was, I'll put you guys on tap. And so that was our first sale. And that it set a precedent too for how we, we would treat other brewers down the road because he just showed us that we call it coopetition, um, cooperating like with those that. that you compete with. And that, that it's kind of that whole rising tide lifts all boats mentality that, that I think is really what helped our whole industry flourish for a lot of years. There was people were really 
shared a lot of information, helped each other out. And it was really neat to have a, another brewer as our first account. I love that coopetition term. I think that's I think that's so powerful, and I think that works in a lot of industries, right? You, especially when there's not a lot of information out there. And I, I love that you were um, you were brave enough. Frankly, you guys were just brave. You know, here's here's this big awesome guy who knows what the heck is going on. You're the new kid on the block, and you just like sucked it up, and you're like, let's go ask him. And he surprised you and said yes. And then you were able to kind of pay that forward throughout the years, it sounds like, and make sure that you can help other people move along. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's, that, that is it on a button. And it's, uh, you know, it's been neat. The camaraderie in the craft brewing industry is, it's unlike anything you can really imagine in a lot of businesses. I know a lot of other businesses and industries, people will help each other out, but there was almost nothing proprietary, you know, until five years ago in the brewing industry. It was like people just shared everything. Wow. Really transparent. That's very cool. Very cool. So how did you get from, okay, you make that first sale and then you mentioned that at some point more recently, I don't know if it was a year later or 10 years later, you're in 10 States. I think you're international now. So how did that whole thing evolve? How'd you go from that first sale to what came next? Well, we were fortunate enough in Durango, you know, it's a small enough community. Communities, communities, everything to us. It's one of our core values. And uh, whether that's that's geographically or, you know, within our walls. Um, community is really important. The community of Durango, Colorado, Southwestern United States, even our staff, our employees. And, and so I think we were fortunate enough that immediately out of the gates, we saw, okay, Durango's starting to really get behind this and slowly, actually rather quickly, other accounts in town just started asking us for the beer because now there's a local brewery that's selling beer on tap and the beer is good. And it was, you know, I think the people here wanted to see us succeed and we were, we probably appeared somewhat unlikely to succeed. And uh, so people really wanted to see us succeed. And so by word of mouth, we started selling more beer around Durango and then Telluride and we were delivering or self-distributing everything, doing it all ourselves. And it started to grow. And pretty soon, you know, we had most of the bars and restaurants in Durango and uh, we didn't have to sell too hard. And I think a lot of it was because we saw Durango supporting us. And so we started to give back in any way possible, um, whether it was help donating beer for nonprofits or fundraisers or volunteering our time. And I think that is that reciprocal, that, that cycle that you get into with your community them supporting us, us supporting them. It, it allowed us to, to really do well in our, in our backyard out of the gates. And then that built a strong enough foundation that we could build on from. That's really nice. It sounds like they, the community almost saw you as the underdog, right? And, and it's, I think it's fun. I see a lot of correlations. Like it sounds like back in the very beginning, you said, if for no other reason to make this succeed, we're going to do it out of spite. We're just going to make it work, right? And then you started making it work, but then the community almost saw you as, okay, these guys are still new. They're the underdog. Let's, they, they make a good product though. Let's lift them up and see if we can help them succeed. And then you're able to like keep that a very symbiotic relationship. So you're giving, they're giving back and it ultimately helps you grow, right? So uh, another question in your growing path, it sounds like if I'm not mistaken, you had two partners, two business partners that are all the leaders of the company. Is that accurate? Correct. There was Bill Graham and I started it. And then a year later, a friend of ours, Matt Vincent in Durango, who was who was brewing at Durango Brewing Company, he 
he was really interested in what we were doing starting this new company. And he came on board after the first year as an equal partner. And the three of us have been partners ever since. So... Okay. And how did you break up your tasks as you started growing? Uh, That is a great question. And I, and I think that's, that's a big lesson learned for us that, that, that I think could be a takeaway for, for a lot of other entrepreneurs is if you can determine that somewhat early, because we didn't, and we all just did everything for too many years until it became a problem. And so it was, Eventually, we started learning each other's strengths. I was I was best at marketing and sales, and and Bill was our strong brewer. Matt was really good with money and and finance and overall operations. And so, it took us, you know, probably twelve years to recognize that, and okay. it was a mess. And uh, we were all doing everything, and if you know, it was, it, all that did was cause problems, and it, and it was really difficult for our employees to navigate. You know, who should they ask or they would maybe play the mom and pop game, you know, go to whoever will give you the right answer and that really? type of thing. Yeah. And so it was, I wish we had recognized that and defined our roles day one, really, to be honest with you. Got so, it. So how, how far were you into this business where you hired that first employee? Who was that first employee and, and uh, how, how did you grow from there? So after our first year, we brought on a, a, a brewer and that was great because we needed we needed to actually start working on the business and keeping track of our books and not just doing the the physical labor of the brewery and uh so that that brewer at the time his name was Joel Tracy he was fantastic and at the same time there was another guy that we brought on that did most of our distribution stuff so he was delivering the beer another guy was brewing most of it but but we all still shared in those tasks and it, but it really helped out. It enabled us to start to get some other things done. And then, you know, that first full year that we were in business, we didn't have any employees. And that was, you know, you mentioned sleeping in my car that first full year for the entire year, we didn't pay ourselves a penny. And I lived in a Volkswagen bus. I would plug my extension cord into Bill's garage so I could use a space heater on the inside of my bus while I slept in in the winter. Yeah. And we didn't pay ourselves a dime for a whole year. And thank God, you know, we were young enough that, that we could do that. I I can't imagine pulling that off today, but, but at the time wasn't really that unusual and, and it wasn't, you know, it was kind of just how we were. So, so where did the name Ska Brewing come from? And and I know you and I are, and, and Carol are a little bit older than probably a lot of our listeners. So I think I know the answer, but uh, um, I think a, a lot of our listeners probably have never heard the term Ska. So it's a type of music. Uh, originally, we were really into, when we were in high school, we were really into punk rock and then Ska music kind of, we figured out what that was. And it, it originated in Jamaica in the late fifties, like, like Bob Marley and the Whalers were originally a Ska band and reggae eventually evolved out of ska and so our ritual when we were homebrewing was that the, the the criteria was we had to absolutely listen to ska music the two criteria listen to ska music when we brewed and drink the previous batch of beer and if we didn't do both of those things this next batch of beer wasn't going to turn out so we had to listen to ska when we when we did it so we started putting ska brewing on our little labels and we were giving beers away as gifts at christmas or birthdays or whatever um because it was pretty novel then you didn't know a lot of people who knew how to brew beer and so it kind of stuck once we moved to durango you know it's kind of a rural town a little bit of a cowboy town with a small liberal arts college we uh we decided to keep the name instead of naming it after a mountain or a dog or that's what everybody else was doing at the time 
And so we stuck with Ska. And, you know, in Durango, our first one of our early accounts, not not Carver's, but, you know, another one of them was kind of off in the hills. It was a steakhouse. It was, it was all cowboys up there. And so we told him it was an acronym for sh- kicking ales. <laughs> <laughs> and, Brilliant. And, uh, I love that. And it's, it's stuck, you know, you still hear that today. And, uh, but really it was a type of music. And, and so it's kind of, you know, it's been the theme and it's part of who we are in the culture here. I mean, we obviously listen to a lot of other stuff, but it's, it's good fun music and it's, it's good beer drinking music. <laughs> That's cool. I love the fact that you guys started out as just a couple friends. You start a business. You're naming it after the music you love. You're sleeping in your car, sleeping in the airport. You're you're brewing small batches. You're running out and getting accounts by hand, like literally just all three of you going together. And here you are today, 25 years later. What does your business look like? And, and I'm going to go back and, and talk about in between, but I want to give people an idea of like where you've gotten to in that last 25 years, starting from there to what, what's today look like? What does your business look like? Sure. Well, we've kind of spun off. So there's, there's right now, Ska Brewing itself, we have a distribution company. So we act as a wholesaler, not only for our own brand, but for about 10 other breweries in Southwestern Colorado. So we sell beer wholesale here for other breweries. We self-distribute our own beer, obviously, in this neck of the woods. And then we have wholesalers in about 10 other states. And we're selling internationally. Sweden is our big market, oddly enough. That's kind of a funny story too. But, but we sell a lot of beer in Sweden. In fact, it's our second biggest market outside of Colorado. So there's... And we're brewing about beer is measured in barrels. So 31 barrels. Or if, or if you think what a full-size keg looks like, that's a half a barrel. So we're brewing around 30,000 barrels of beer now. Wow. And yeah, it's not huge, it's, but it's, it's, we're probably top 100 out of 8,000 breweries in the country, probably pretty close to that. Wow. And so how are you, uh, how do you go from like, you're picking the name of your company based on the music you like. I've seen some of the names of your beers. It's just like, is there any science there? Are you guys just still flying by the seat of your pants or are you now doing focus groups and, and you have marketing companies? I mean, uh, how, how has that evolved? Yeah, it's not the same as it was, but it, but, it, but to some extent it really is like, the, it's just the culture of the place that we started with. You know, you mentioned it a couple of times, but we're you know, we were really into comic books and ska music and punk rock and beer. And, and we, we didn't really touch on this yet, but we wrote a comic book kind of right out of the gates and it ties into that underdog story or the David versus Goliath kind of thing. And we wrote the comic book and it was basically us naively opening a little brewery in the heart of Rotgutsen International Beverage Corporation's territory. And Rotgutsen is any giant brewery conglomerate that you want to imagine. Um, but it, uh, that whole story was just a David versus Goliath story. And that kind of helped us, helped us through the years. And it's kind of held together what our, what our culture is, what our story is. We're fighting the big guy. We're fighting the good fight. And so, and we're still listening to that music and we're still going to these punk rock shows. And even though the business is much more serious and you're dealing with 70 people, employees that have families that are counting on you to make the right decisions, and at the same time, you know, you're, you obviously have to take things seriously because you're talking millions of dollars, you know? So we've, it, it feels the same, but there is a little bit of extra weight there. And things are certainly a lot more pro than, than they used to be. And I think the bonus is, you know, you, you hire the right people. 
as soon as we realized it was time to start hiring people that were smarter than us, that was a big change for us. So, and you know, by the time we built the building we're in currently, which we built in 2008, um, those, that was when we were starting to make better decisions and peel ourselves out of the areas that we were not experts in. And, uh, so that's, you know, even though the decisions are bigger, yeah, we've got, we've got our own marketing, you know, department in house and they do most of it, but we have, we have some help from, from agencies on occasion, depending on the project or the idea. And, uh, and obviously there's people keeping a close eye on the money now. And it's just, there's a lot of people involved that are making better decisions than I could ever make on my own. That's really neat. I'm curious about uh, one thing. I'm, I'm listening to this story, which I'm fascinated by. I absolutely love it. And you mentioned something just a minute ago about you have to be kind of serious now. And as I look through your branding, I listen to the names of your different brews. Still how you, like you said, you still go to your ska shows, just the way everything works. It sounds like one of the, the kind of like the magic superpowers of your business is kind of not taking yourselves too seriously, but taking the business seriously, right? So you also mentioned David and Goliath. And I'm just wondering, do you, do you ever wonder now that you are in the, in the top 100 brewers in the United States, do you ever start worrying that you might become um, the Goliath? Are you ever concerned that that could possibly happen or how do you keep it from happening? Or frankly, do you even want it to happen? Is that something that maybe you want to become that Goliath? Oh gosh, that's a great question. I, uh, I, I don't know that we may have put those constraints on ourselves unknowingly. Like we're such a, uh, I think we're such a unique brewery. There might be limits out there that are self-imposed with that. We might not realize that we are imposing on ourselves just because of the branding and who we are and the attitude that we have. It's hard for me to imagine actually being a Goliath. So, but it is weird because we do float right in this, this middle space, you know, we're not a tiny brewery. And we can't just do everything on a whim. And, but we're not, you know, we're still a little bit nimble. We can move like a speedboat, not necessarily a, a, an aircraft carrier if we have to. And which is obviously really important as, as things evolve in our industry. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I can't quite picture that, you know, a little bigger maxing out this space would be great if we can get, you know, it's always fun when you're growing, you know, we had the, the industry had some really good years leading up to, it started to peak out this this past year. And some of those years when you're just gr- going crazy, you know, it, it hides all the mistakes when you're growing that fast sure. and you, you know, suddenly you slow down, you have to tighten things up, but it, I'm not going to lie. It was really fun when we were easily growing double digits, you know, and uh, it's, it's a blast actually. Definitely. Before we move on to the next part of our show, let's hear from one of our show sponsors. Real estate investing is known for a lot of things, mainly making a very select group of people a whole lot of money. But being an online cutting-edge experience is usually not one of those hallmarks. Well, thanks to Fundrise, that's no longer the case. Fundrise is the future of real estate investing. Their revolutionary model is transforming the industry, thanks to their software, which cuts out the costly middlemen and removes old market inefficiencies. Fundrise delivers the kind of investing power you typically only see at the big institutions and can now bring real estate's unique potential for long-term growth and cash flow to individual investors like us. Getting started is simple and usually takes less than five minutes. 
When you invest with Fundrise, you'll be instantly diversified across dozens of real estate projects, each one carefully vetted and actively managed by Fundrise's team of real estate professionals. Then you can use their intuitive investor dashboard and real-time reporting system to monitor the progress of each property in your portfolio. Now that's the future of real estate investing. So are you ready to get started? Then visit Fundrise.com slash BP business. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash BP business. And you'll get the first three months of fees waived. Again, that's Fundrise.com slash BP business. Small business owners wear a lot of hats and While some hats are really great, others like the filing taxes and running payroll hat, yeah, not so great. So that's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and managing a team actually easy for small businesses. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Oh, and you can even get direct access to certified HR experts too. 90% of customers say switching to Gusto was easy. You can do it in less than 10 minutes. And if you're thinking, oh, I already work with tools like say QuickBooks, well, get this, Gusto can integrate with those platforms so you can keep everything in one place all online. So listen up for this offer. Because you listen to Bigger Pockets Business, you get three months free when you run your first payroll on Gusto. This is one hat you're going to be glad you gave up. So try a demo and see for yourself at gusto.com slash BPB, like Bigger Pockets Business. Again, that's gusto.com slash BPB. I know craft beer has gone through a lot of changes over the last 25 years. I mean, it was, I guess, 25 years ago, you had a few big players and then craft beer became big and and lots of small players and the industry is constantly changing. Where has the industry kind of gone over the last few years and how do you think you fit in? How's that affected your business? Well, that's a great question. There's the model now, you know, when we opened up and, and what we were really driving to do when we built this brewery, we built it from the ground up in 2008, moved out of our old space. And our model at the time, and still really to this day, it's our bread and butter, is wholesale sales, you know, outside of our walls. And as more and more breweries have opened up across the country, uh, it's and local and even hyper local has become such a big part of everything. So whereas most people at one point in time would go to a liquor store or a bar to have a craft beer, they now have the option of just walking down to the corner brewery and have enough really fresh beer right in the tasting room. And that's been the profitable model and where all the growth has gone in our industry in the last couple of years. Yeah, the tasting room only model where they're maybe not selling beer outside of their own walls, a lot smaller. So for us... Uh, it's become difficult because some of those breweries are trying to get shelf space in, say, a liquor store. There's obviously, you know, thousands more breweries than there were when we opened, and but the but the shelf space itself isn't necessarily expanding, right? So there's so many more options. They gotta sell what's local in a liquor store or a bar because that's what sells and that's what people want. But then there's a lot of options for those last couple shelf spaces or those or those last couple tap handles and the big brewers almost by default or the big craft brewers they're going to they're going to take a part of that almost automatically 
So that doesn't leave much for a brewery like us. That's kind of what we call anybody over 15,000 barrels is considered a regional specialty brewer. So for regional breweries like us that aren't necessarily nationwide, but selling in their neck of the country, it's kind of a difficult model to go ahead and keep getting new shelf space because it's very competitive and you're fighting hyper-local. And that's, that's really where the industry has gone. So, you know, to stay relevant now and y- you have to be nimble and you have to evolve and you have to be able to uh, provide something that the consumer wants. And the consu- today's consumer that's drinking craft beer is not the same consumer that it was 15 years ago for us. So, And I think that's a really important point. And I'm wondering throughout all these years, you're talking about how things have just changed. So maybe not necessarily rapidly, but I guess they go through growth, uh, go through different spurts of when it is a big change. And then you move into the the private tasting room and all the different things. How, how are you and your company able to stay relevant? How do you figure out what those trends are? Is it by talking to your customers? Is it by going to trade shows? Is, I mean, what is it that makes you be at the forefront of what the market wants? Well, that, that's, that's obviously a difficult balance because at some point, if you just follow every trend and you've built your brand on authenticity, you're going to lose a little bit of that by not doing what is really you, right? So we have a character here. We have beer, certain beers we like. Obviously, we do a lot of brew, a lot of popular styles. But if we just follow trends, then I think we become more of a generic brewery with less character. And our, you know, one of our mottos is it takes character to brew beers with character. And that the characters tie into all our labels, our comic book, our staff. So we do what we want to do, I guess, first and foremost, you know, what feels good? What are our brewers into? What kind of beers do they want to brew? Where, who do we want to work with? Who are our wholesale partners? Um, But then you do have to take that level. Like, what what actually sells it doesn't do any good if nobody wants it at all right so right. so there are popular styles there are always hot styles you know as far as beers go some of them will brew because we love them some of them we won't because they're not just not anybody's favorite beer here and then we kind of live in a little bubble in the durango world so it's its own little micro demographic and those we don't want to upset them because they're the very foundation of our business and uh, sure. so you kind of have to find a balance between all of the all of those pieces. Talking about trends, uh, that reminds me of a story I was reading. I, I was again doing some research yesterday, and I was reading a story uh, about a trend that went bad and led you to create a new beer with an interesting name. Do you know what story I'm talking about? Oh, uh, it's got to be BHC DIPA. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it. Can you, contract. <laughs> can you tell us about that story? Like wh- how it all came about, what changed in the industry and, and how you basically overcame that obstacle in your business? Yeah, we, we did momentarily overcome that obstacle. But the story <laughs> is kind of a bad ending, but I'll get to it. Yeah, that's, we thought it was really um, one of our sales guys. Is, his name's Arlo Grammatica. We call him our barroom hero. Longtime employee. He's been here for 17 years. He, uh, he had this idea. And sometimes when we have funny ideas, it's just like, it's funny enough that you have to run with it, whether you think it's going to be successful or not. But there was a big dilemma kind of in the brewery world. A number of years ago, there's a hop shortage. And if what hops shot way up in price and breweries our size realized that, wow, we need to kind of secure our future and we need to start signing like five-year contracts with our farmers, with our farmers so that 
we're not out of hops um, if there's a bad year or a bad couple years or if anything happens. So a lot of brewers went really long on their contracts and then it was the perfect storm. The consumer's tastes started changing. Brewer's tastes started changing. Uh, went from really bitter, piney, citrusy hops to fruitier, more tropical flavored hops. And then also, you know, you had the, the millennial demographic coming in at the same time who, who likes diversity. And uh, so suddenly you've got five-year contracts based on a beer that was growing really well, and it's kind of irrelevant suddenly. And so there was a glut of extra hops for sale on the internet and everywhere. I mean, people, some breweries were giving them away just to get them out of there, take the loss and get, get them out of their warehouse. They need the space, right? So we didn't really know what to do. So we decided to brew a special beer with a number of these hops that we were really long on. And we actually called it bad hop contract because we thought, it, <laughs> we thought it would be so funny. We were hoping we didn't upset too many farmers, you know, but, but we, we figured, gosh, everyone's got this problem. Let's actually, let's just, let's just embrace the problem and, uh, and try and use it as a sales tool. So we actually came out with bad hop contract, double IPA. So it was a really hoppy double IPA. And we thought it was funny. We made a couple funny videos about it and, and, uh, and it was a delicious beer, but everyone loved it. What what was the reception afterward? People like this is awesome, or wow, what was how'd that go down? <laughs> That's kind of the bummer ending to the story. Everyone, oh, everyone, sorry, everyone did love it, but it just didn't sell. So it, oh, it, it, it satisfied one need, I guess, in that we did use some hops. It, it sold fairly well. We learned something. Uh, it's one of those failures, you know, that you learn from. There um, you go. There's every, always every failure. Failures. You learn from every failure. Yeah. That's awesome. That's right. That's yeah, right. you really do. And and I think the beauty of that though is it I think it's just a really good example of something you mentioned earlier that your company just by the nature of it and by your culture you're able to be nimble. You're able to be quick. You're able to be resourceful. You're able to experiment and take what you've got and, you know, turns le- turn lemons into lemonade, right? So that's, I think, really important in any business. Do you have any other like interesting examples of an experiment that you've done over the years that you are so glad you took the chance on and went ahead and did it? Building what is our currently brewery in 2008 was it was a big move for us because we knew we were going to have to expand into a bunch of other markets and, and to try and fill out the space and actually make it function efficiently. And so that, that took the course of a year. You know, none of us were architects or, or really engineers, even though my partner, Matt, has a very strong engineering mind. But, you know, we designed with and, and built this, this facility uh, based on an odd piece of property, odd shaped piece of property that we bought. And we had to do a lot of um, odd design work to increase our efficiencies, but to maximize the space at the same time. So it's, it's four stories and some, some parts. Yeah. It's two stories and other parts. It's built on a small triangular lot because everything kind of around us, surrounding us is they're all one story steel warehouses. We're kind of in a, we're kind of like this little oasis in this industrial park right on the edge of town. So, but it, it was nerve wracking because, I mean, I'll tell you guys this because you're real estate people. There's a, <laughs> this is kind of a, it's kind of a bummer, but it's kind of funny at the same time. We, we actually had the opportunity to buy our old building that we were just occupying a small part of from the guy who owned it and was leasing it to us because he was building a new building for his business. And he told us that whatever the bank wouldn't lend us, he would carry. 
so we bought the building and then in, in 2008, we sold it, doubled our money. And at that time, you know, we'd been open for 13 years. All of our salaries from all of our employees and ourselves that had ever worked there combined didn't even equal the amount of that one real estate transaction for us. No way. In terms of the okay. money we made. <laughs> that is crazy talk. Crazy talk. It's just amazing to me. I'm like sitting here looking at this whole big picture, thinking back 1995, here's you and a couple buddies in a Volkswagen bus in an airport, borrowing some money from someone's dad, just brewing some beer and having a good old time to now owning this four story in some parts, two story in other parts, building and distributing beer around the world. It's just such an inspiring growth story. I love it. <laughs> It's, it's pretty funny. And it, 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 and the cool thing about that was once we did that, you know, we were able to use that as a down payment and then borrow every penny that we could on that money. And so that was for us, it was a giant leap of faith, but it, it, it played out, you know, it was worth taking the risk. And, uh, and it, unfortunately I've seen friends in the industry that maybe took a similar step, but a, but a few years too late, um, before kind of our industry started to slow down. And it's, it's affecting a lot of brewers our size. And it'll be interesting. I think that we're kind of in a little bit of a shakeout where we're going to see more breweries closing as well as opening than, than ever before. And hopefully none of our friends that are over, too over leveraged because they're all brewing such good beer as well. Right, right. I'm just curious in that facility you're talking about, is that where your tasting room is also? It is. Yeah. So we're kind of just right outside of Durango and we have a, we have a little tasting room. We have a restaurant too, that we built out of, uh, we, out of shipping containers, which was, no kidding. yeah, we had always wanted to do that. So there's a restaurant here and then, and then our tasting room. And then obviously the, all the manufacturing, it's all in one location. And are those, are those components of the business, the, the tasting room and the restaurant, are those real moneymakers? Are they more of just a marketing thing where it's kind of a wash, but it just gets your name more out there? Or what's kind of the purpose of that? They are moneymakers. And what's cool. great about it, like the tasting room, the closer you can be to home with craft beer, it, craft beer is perishable. It, it is food. And you, it, it's the closer we are to home, you know, the quicker we can we can make moves, the better control we have over the quality, for example, and also the better margins. So it's better, best quality, you know, best margins. Selling a beer by the pint in our tasting room right over the bar is obviously a much better margin than selling it, shipping it, first of all, to a wholesaler that then marks it up and sells it to a retailer. That's, that's our bread and butter, but it's not nearly as profitable. Well, since you opened the door to uh, the numbers side of the business and your margins, I, I'd love to dig into this just a little bit. I imagine that a uh, large portion of the business expenses goes into capital expenses. So you have to buy the building, you have to buy the equipment, the machinery, the tools, then you have the employees. Uh, but from a product standpoint, is it a real high margin business? I mean, are you basically buying a lot of low cost uh, ingredients, putting them together and marking it up tremendously, or are the ingredients and, and, and the processes that you use, is that a significant portion of, of the, of the, uh, what you end up reselling for? What do your margins look like? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think it's an under pretty often understood. It's kind of a myth that beer is that profitable, right? It is profitable by the pine over the bar, but once again, that's not the model that we have. That's not the bulk of our sales bulk of our sales are what we're distributing around Colorado and, and those other states and countries. And it, the margins are so slim on 
because of, well, because of the raw materials involved, obviously, you know, you have to have your package to put it in the labor involved with all of that, but then shipping, shipping the raw materials ah. here that, ah. that then you have to ship back out and they weigh a lot more when they go out, obviously full of beer. And then everyone's got to take a margin, their margin along the way. So you had a couple middlemen and by the time you're actually, the beer's getting into the hands of the consumer, we're, in fact, we have a couple products that, that because of fluctuations in raw materials product costs and, and just cost of goods in general, at times lose money for us when we sell them. And that's hard to stomach, but, uh, but it comes and goes, you always have to be working on that, but it's, it's profitable in the tasting room, but that's just a tiny portion of our business. Most of our beer is sold wholesale and that is not very profitable at all. Yeah, I guess you're from a, a, a margins and a profitability standpoint, you're kind of at a, at a, a disadvantage in two places. First, because you don't have the scale of some of the, the big right. international breweries. You don't get those economies of scale. But secondly, as a craft brewer, people expect and, and you want your product to differentiate itself on quality, not just scale, not just brand, not just name, but you want the top notch product. And obviously, as, as everybody knows, a great product is going to cost more to make than, than a lesser product. So, so you're also at uh, somewhat of a disadvantage there compared to some of your big competitors. Yeah. You know, the, like the consumer doesn't see that we've got a really expensive lab with a couple of full-time chemists on the staff monitor, monitoring that. And uh, those are some of those costs, you know, that's, that's expensive to to have a, a full functioning lab to stay on top of your quality and to hire people to do that. And and that's not something you think about, you know, on the consumer end. So it's once you start adding those, all of those little components into it, it really does, by the time you're selling beer in Sweden, you know, you're not you're not making that much. And then when you get to a country like that, you're dealing with a whole nother set of issues. Like they're they're taxed on the amount of alcohol that is in a beer. And over here, when it's really exciting to brew big alcohol beers over there, it's just, you know, you end up selling beer at seven, eight, nine dollars a can in the liquor store, you know? And so all of those, everybody's, you know, everybody like anything, everybody's got to make a little bit of money along the way. And that's, that's, uh, it makes it really hard. So you really have to be efficient in this space. Right. And so I'm just fascinated. Like I, I never really, I've, Got to be honest, I never really thought about all the different intricacies along the way, along the chain of after you brew it in all the different distributors and all the different channels. And like you said, when you're dealing internationally and all the different taxes in Sweden and so on. Yet, like you said, even you know, not you're not only making you're not only making a profit in your tasting room, but clearly you've grown exponentially. You continue to grow. You have a secret sauce somewhere. So, <laughs> what is that? What is that one thing that you attribute the success of your business to? Is it a quality product? Is it marketing? Is it your internal culture? What is that thing that sets you apart? Because you hear stories all the time of people trying to do what you're doing and they fall by the wayside, but you guys have risen so far above that. So what is it? What are you doing? Yeah. And I I think about this a lot and uh, it's hard for me to nail down the one thing, but I think if you, I'm trying to think if there's like, if there's some term that could encompass everything that you just mentioned, it's uh. You know, I think, I think authenticity is a huge thing. Like if you've got a story to tell and, and you, you adhere to that story and it's the consumer can feel it and they can feel like they're a part of the story along with you. 
I think that's something that we have that is really hard to replicate. If you're somebody, I'll just use the term rot guts and you know, they, they can't really do that as well. You're never truly part of that story. Um, they're, it's not authentic when they just, whether it's, you know, the bikini clad Swedish swimsuit team or whatever it is, you know, it's just, they're just doing any crazy thing they can to, to sell more of a giant mass produced kind of lame product, you know, whereas if you've got a great story and you, and people can really feel that it's real, then I think that's, you know, to me, it feels like that we've never, we've never crossed that boundary. I feel like we're the same people today that we've always been and, and that it shows. And, but at the same time, you know, that wouldn't matter if we didn't have a quality product. Right. It, it, It does take everything else at the same time. That's great. Well, I want to jump into the last segment of the show, but before I do that, I want to hear a little bit about what's next for you guys. So you, you teased us with, uh, you, you have a separate business, I think earlier, um, that you spun off. Tell us a little bit more about that and, and, and where does Ska Brewing and the other business go from here? That's a great question. We were just talking about that this morning. Um, we, so, so Bill and I started a distillery in Colorado in 2005. It's called Peach Street Distillers. And then my partner, Matt, spun off. Matt was not part of Peach Street. My partner, Matt, spun off and started Ska Fabricating a few years ago. And he manufactures uh, conveyance and, and depalletizing systems for basically for canning and bottling lines. Uh, most, most, those of, are some big words right there. Yeah. So there's <laughs> part of the, part of your canning or bottling line is the machine that actually puts the cans or the bottles onto the line. And when we first, when we, we were the second craft brewery in the country to start canning beer. And so we had to invent a lot of our own equipment because it was all made for giant brewers. And so Matt started kind of inventing stuff and eventually it spun off into its own thing because there was a big need out there for, that size of equipment. So, so right now, these last few years, Bill's actually been living in Palisade, Colorado, kind of running the show at Peach Street Distillers. Matt's here in Durango, but just down the road running Scott Fabricating. He actually bought back our old building that we made all that money selling. <laughs> and uh, so he's back in there with his business and along with a couple of other businesses that, that are associated with that. And then I'm the day-to-day guy that's still here at Scott. So, so as far as moving forward and what does the future look like, we've done a couple of neat things recently with, with our distillery. We're sharing some resources like our, our reps in Colorado we share now. And it's kind of neat because craft distilling is a number of years behind craft brewing, but, but the industry itself, the distilling industry, the spirit side has learned a lot from what craft beer has done. So, so their trajectory is a lot steeper. They're learning faster. They, they learned a lot watching brewers. And so it's growing really well right now. And there's a lot of synergies there, whether it's, whether it's us using our old bourbon barrels to age beers in or sharing street reps. So I think we're going to keep kind of sharing those resources and moving forward and trying to become a, a, a brewery and a distillery that can better serve the, our customers and our fans needs. And I think working together at this point, it's the, it's the right point in time to be doing that. And and it's kind of neat, even though we're not owners of, of Scott Fabricating, you know, we share the name because that's beneficial to both companies. You know, he's, he's got the word out there from, from being part of Scott Brewing. And then, you know, as people keep hearing Scott Fabricating, it really, I think it just, it just resonates more and more and more people can hear that the word Scott. So that's so cool. I, 
I've got to tell you, Dave, I'm really thrilled that I can now say that I talked to the guy who is on the cutting edge of craft distilling. I mean, that's that's really cool in all seriousness. It's a big trend right now, obviously. And I, I never really, I, I didn't think of it in those terms because whenever Jay and I go out, we marvel at all these craft cocktails that are so big right now and in all of these different like super fancy schmancy ingredients that are and everything that, you know, when we were back in school, they weren't even a thing. So it's just this cool new trend into to know that I just talked to the guy who is on the forefront of figuring out how to how to make those things and, and make the super special ingredients. I'm really darn proud of that right now. So thank you for being that guy. <laughs> I, appreciate, I appreciate that. <laughs> and, and Dave, I think I read somewhere that um, you guys were doing this cool, I, I, I don't want to call it a marketing thing. It was a product um, where you are now selling uh, bourbon and beer that is made in the same barrels. Can oh, you yeah. tell us? Can, can you tell us I, I thought that was really, really cool from both the marketing and a product standpoint. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you brought up earlier relevance and the need to be nimble. Um, at this this day and age, and at this stage in our industry, this is a good example of of I think a good example of of what that is and what that can mean and what you need to do to actually stay relevant. So we call it the Boomerang Barrel Program. Some of our suppliers and maybe the bigger liquor stores, for example can come to the distillery now and actually taste a number of single barrels of our bourbon. And, you know, we blend the bourbon so that the end product, after a, a number of years of aging, we blend certain barrels to keep our consistency. And But before we blend, there's little subtle differences from barrel to barrel to barrel. So the owners of a number of establishments in Colorado anyways have come now and we, and, and this is something that we offer, they can come to the distillery taste a number of barrels and pick their own barrel and then we'll bottle it and it'll be their own bourbon where we'll add a special label to it that actually has their establishment on the label. And so we'll so bottle cool. yeah, we'll bottle one barrel specifically for one account and they get the entire contents of that barrel. And then what we've done is then we take that barrel, send it to SCA and the couple beers we've done now are 17% Imperial Stouts. So really big beers. Yeah. What? 17, one seven. Yeah. For one real. seven. Yeah. Seven. Oh my gosh. Do not let me near that, yeah. honey. That's dangerous. I love it. <laughs> and then we age it in that, in that same barrel. And then the beer, the bourbon and the barrel all end up as a display in that store. And, uh, and then, you know, you can actually keep working that barrel back and forth, depending on how so far cool. you want to take it. There's a lot of things you could do with used spirits barrels. It's that's it it's really super fun, and the synergies between the two companies make it. It's just a blast, and it's sounds like it. Yeah, and so that's that's a cool. I, I it's you know it's a great sales program. It's a good marketing tool. It's a good story to tell, and it's a lot of fun to do. And I think the you know people really appreciate that at the retail level. Absolutely. It, everything you're talking about, it it's just so clear that your heart and soul is completely poured into this business. And I think that goes back to the authenticity that you were talking about earlier. Every single thing you talk about, you, you've just, you've stayed true to yourself. You stay true to loving the work and it really shines through in all the innovations that you're bringing forward. It's just great, great stuff. Love it. Hey. Really cool. Okay, so cool. Dave, um, let's move to the part of the show that we call Four More, okay? So we're going to start with four questions that we ask all of our guests, and then we're going to jump into the more, which is where we can find out more about you, all right? So are you ready for the four questions? Four questions. Let's have them. 
Let's do it. Jay, you're up, my friend. Okay, Dave. So what was your worst job ever? And what lessons did you learn from that that you took into your your ultimate ultimate business at Scott Brewing? My worst job. That was probably one of the really early, early jobs I had. I was a dishwasher for a catering company. Yeah, a rough one. You know, I was pretty young, and and so it was uh, to me. It was great to have the job, but the 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 couple that owned the company, they. I'll give you an example. I don't know why this stuck in my head, but there was a number of these. But I remember one time, someone was in there in the back where I was washing dishes, and the owner was there with a friend, and I think they had just had lunch there in the front or something. And the guy asked where the garbage was. And the owner just pointed to me and said, <laughs> yeah, and said he's right there. And uh, I, uh, I crushed. Wow. I, actually, I actually made it through the day, but then I started crying. And at the end of the day, you know, I told my mom about it. And like, it was, it was a relatively new job for me. I'd only been there for maybe a week. And, uh, and I think, I mean, it's stuck in my head. And that was just one example. She, she'd make comments like that pretty often, mostly to me. And, but she would treat everybody else that worked there quite a bit differently. And, uh, it, 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 it instilled in me, I think like I still physically, I can feel it in my stomach talking to you right now, how I felt that day. And, uh, and it instilled into me, you know, that everybody that's related to the organization is equally important. And, um, and I think it's, it's, and we have to do that as managers and as leaders, you know, you have to, and and I'm I'm not the best at it, but you have to let everybody know that they're important to you and what they mean to you, and that you know you wouldn't be here without them, no matter no matter what role they play in your company. Love that. That's great. Okay, so Dave, what is the first moment that you realized you had the entrepreneurial itch? Was there sometime like way back when that you just knew you got to be doing your own thing? Uh, yeah, there was. There was. That's an easy question for me. I've I, I, I've. I've thought about that in the past. And there was, when I was a little kid, um, you know, the different elementary schools had their own neighborhoods, you know, and there was a, I was probably eight or nine years old and there was a, a, a school or a, a candy store that was kind of in the next neighborhood away. And they had all these weird exotic candies that you could not find anywhere around my house, but it was really only probably a half an hour bike ride. And so I would ride every once a week down to this place originally just because I wanted the weird candy that they had. But <laughs> once I got back and I'd show up in the neighborhood and my friends or whoever would be like, where did you get that? Where'd you get that? And I just realized, oh my God, you know, there's a, there's a need for this candy in the neighborhood. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I actually set up shelves in my closet and had this secret candy store. And That's so cool. Yeah, and I'd bring, I'd bring, I'd have people line up at certain times of the day out in front of the <laughs> house, and then bring them all in at once. And I'd have all the candy with prices. I'd just double the price on everything, and have everybody come in and buy candy from me. And then I, you know, I'd take all that money, take a little portion out to reinvest, and head back down to the ride my bike to that next elementary school's neighborhood and buy their weird candy. And it was kind of a, I don't know that I realized it then, but. You know, I was thinking about it. You guys were talking on one of your podcasts, I think the one with Brent Underwood about everybody's early jobs being at a golf course. And I remember doing another thing. That was one of my early jobs working in the clubhouse of a golf course. And I, and we were allowed to play for free and nobody at this country club would, 
would take their golf balls out of the pond. You know, if it hit the pond, even if it was only a foot or two feet in, so you'd play and you'd walk by these ponds and you'd see all these golf balls that these rich guys just <laughs> live, can live without. And so we just use our ball retrievers and scoop them up and then go to the city, uh, the city golf course and set up on the ninth hole and sell them for 50 cents. And so awesome. like, I've always just had that. It's just been, it's just part of who I am. I don't know why or how it got instilled in me, but maybe just that first candy thing. I don't know. Love it. Love awesome. it. Love it. <laughs> Okay. So what is the worst advice you've been given either in your personal life or in your industry? And how would you go about changing that bad advice into good advice? Oh, oh, you know, I think I might've sort of touched on this in a, in a way earlier, but I, one piece of bad advice that, 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 and you hear it all the time is if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And I think I think for me, like that was the problem was I was going by that advice for too many years when there was so many people that we could have brought in early that could have done a better job than me. And uh, it took a lot of years to learn that. And, you know, now it's, we understand that it's how we hire, you know, hire the, hire the best, hire people that are really good and don't worry about, I don't know if it was an insecurity thing or a, an ego thing, but not learning that lesson early on that no, there's, yeah, but if you want something done right, have someone else do it is the real advice, right? <laughs> That's a great, my, it's a great mindset. Shift. I love it. I could I not it. agree more. Could not agree more. Okay. The last and fourth question is, so Dave, when it comes to spending money, whether in your business life or your personal life, what's something that you've splurged on that was totally worth it? Oh, I, I mean, that's actually, that's kind of easy for me. Um, it, it's my mountain bike. I, uh, in Durango, Durango's a big outdoorsy Colorado town. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of mountain biking here, but I kind of, uh, two years ago, I actually, I've always had a mountain bike that I, that I, somehow got a deal on, you know, or traded some beer for or whatever. Um, just being a local business person, maybe I had some ins or outs. I finally decided to buy the bike I wanted that fit me right, regardless of the cost. And I did it and I don't, I don't regret it at all. It is so fun. And I've always, that's kind of a, you know, my physical and, and mental and, and fiscal health are, are really important to me personally, but and we try and instill those values in, in our employees as well and really focus on health. Personally, in my family, like we don't have a problem spending money on something if it helps, if it, if it keeps you healthy. And something that's as fun as mountain biking, like now I'm just, I'm never going to have a bad mountain bike again. It's like priority wow. number one. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. Okay. So Dave, tell us a little bit. Let's jump into the more. Tell us a little bit about where people can find out more about you, how they can get in touch with you. And most importantly, for those of us who want to try either Scott Brewing Beer or Peachtree Distillers Spirits, who of us are lucky enough to be able to do that? And how do we do it? Okay. The the states around Colorado are pretty easy. And then some, and most of the Midwest has the Scott Brewing products. Peachtree Distillers is is really just Colorado, but you can find it at a lot of the liquor stores and, and bars and restaurants, especially like in the foodie places, Denver, Boulder are good with the spirits, but you can also find more information on the spirits at peachstreetdistillers.com. And then more information on the brewery at scabrewing.com. And then on Instagram and Twitter, I'm scabrewdave. 
And you can email me directly too, just at davidscabrewing.com. Easy way to reach me. Awesome. Favorite ska band? Oh gosh, man. It's like choosing your favorite kid at this point. I, uh, <laughs> I, don't, know, I don't know that I could do that. Oh, I can do that. I can do that anytime. <laughs> I, just, I did just see a, a really well-known band um, live in Phoenix last week and they're the Mighty Mighty Boston's. And uh, I got to say the show was so fun. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say that's my most recent show and it was a blast. <laughs> so fun. Awesome. Cool. Well, Dave, thank you so much for this. this thank was, you. Thank you. Thank you. This was great talking to you. And and like every episode, now I want to go out and I want to start my own brewery. <laughs> I, don't think know, I'm right? gonna, I don't think I'm going to do it, but uh, let me tell you something. It sounds awesome. Uh, yeah. Thank you guys. I bet you, that's something you have to deal with all the time. Every time you get off the podcast with somebody, you want to go start a similar business, right? <laughs> totally. We're so inspired and so motivated. We're like, well, we're going to go do that too. It's oh, amazing. I love it. Well, thank you guys very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank Talk you, to you soon. Dave. Have a good one. See ya. I loved this episode, Jay. What'd you think? I thought this was great. He was real. He was authentic. I mean, it's so cool to see somebody who basically, he didn't know what he wanted to do after college. He liked brewing beer. I guess he liked sleeping in his car and he somehow figured out how to just take his passions and what he enjoyed. And he figured out over years how to create a business from it. I, I love that when he said, um, when I asked, so what were your goals for your business early on? And he was like, huh? I don't know. I was just, right. we just started a business and, and he, they're just having fun. Uh, just some kids having a good time. And here we are 25 years later. Here's the thing I love 25 years later, there's still just some old kids having a good time. That's exactly it. They're still doing what they love and just pouring every bit of passion into it that they can. I totally want to go start a brewery now, don't you? I know. That's what I said. I really would love to start a brewery. It's awesome. So much fun. Okay. So uh, I think we are good here. Are you good here, Miss Carol? I'm so good. Miss Carol, that's hilarious. Let's wrap this thing up, baby. Okay. She is Carol. I am Jay. Now go pour your heart and soul into something today. Have an awesome day, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye.